Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Taking some time in this second book of the Psalms, which begins really in the 42nd Psalm, and the opening sections of this second book deal with the Psalms that are designated for the sons of Korah. And this is, as we've well rehearsed, the same Korah uh, that is mentioned in Jude uh, as the gainsaying of Korah. It's the same one mentioned in the book of Numbers uh, as the one that withstood Moses and of which him and the two malcontents from of Ru- the two uh, Reubenitic malcontents, uh, the earth did open and swallow alive. In fact, I think it's on Father's Day we preached a little bit about uh, Daddy's sin and the son's choices. Not all of his descendants of Korah's were killed on that fateful day. In fact, perhaps the one that will quickly reach our minds as one that is a descendant is that of Samuel, the prophet and priest at the time of Saul and of the early part of the reign of King David. His father was Elkna. When you chase this all the way back through his dad, Tohu, etc., you come to find that Samuel is a direct descendant removed maybe a half a dozen generations so from that particular day. And the sons of Korah, namely those descendants of Kohath, would later become singers in the, temp- in the, uh, in the uh, temple. In fact, one of them was named Heman, First uh, Chronicles chapter 6, and he is related as the singer. And he, in fact, was a descendant, perhaps a grandson or great-grandson, I forget the lineage there, but a direct descendant of Samuel which again, I would remind you when you think of Samuel, uh, that in Samuel's old age, one of the things that extended in the minds of the Jews a motive by which they should get a king was the fact that they had already universally made the decision that the sons of Samuel would not reign over them. Uh, For the sons of Samuel were as the sons of Belial in one sense. They were treacherous men. Uh, And it seems to be a reoccurrence that had happened earlier in the life of Samuel as he saw the same thing witnessed in the life of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. But nonetheless, these sons and descendants would have a number, perhaps 11 psalms, and next week we'll be on Psalm 49, and that'll be about one of the last ones. It's not the last one, but one of the last ones that are directed uh, as a song of Korah. Now, these half a dozen, dozen psalms are directly linked together. In many cases, they are very prophetical in nature. And that should not come as a surprise because the book of Psalms should not singularly be seen as just a psalm book by which we sing songs, but rather it is, in its essence, prophetical in nature. I would remind you that even as the Lord Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, his last words, giving up the ghost, you know, it is finished. That is a direct quote from the book of Psalms. Many of those last savings, you go to the 66th Psalm and you find about the prophecies fulfilled about the, the, the splitting of his garment or about the fact that no bone would be broken. It's all prophetical in nature. And so as we study through these, we'd be remiss not to see the prophecies that are mentioned and foreshadowed in the uh, in the book of Psalms, particularly this selection that we have here. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in the 47th Psalm, and our general theme on the 47th Psalm is this, the great king. And we looked at this great king and what he did for the house of Israel, and what he would do as he uh, reigns over the heathen, as he establishes a throne in his holiness, which we should not remiss as a direct reflection that is made there. Uh, And it talks in the last verse of the 47th Psalm to describe the greatness of the King God. It uses this phrase, the shields of the earth belong unto God. Now, without revisiting all of this, but to set the scene for this morning's uh, study in the 48th Psalm, the shields of all the earth belong to God. If you would study in the Old Testament, you would find that as uh, two enemies met on a field of battle, You'd find that the one that was defeated, their sword, or rather shields, would be taken from thence, and they would be hung on the walls of the throne of the king that had conquered them. And each kingdom would have their own, on that same wall, great majestic swords or shields. Once again, I want to say swords so bad, but shields is what we're speaking of. You can read about this in the time of Hezekiah and Rehoboam and Solomon of their great shields that they had. 
So he's not just speaking in a poetic sense here, in a practical sense, that one day all of the shields of all the world will belong to God. Now, there is a sense in which we can say that today. Surely God is greater than any king. We spent some time in the Sunday school hour, and we were looking a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar, and it is not a difficult thing at all to say that surely God was greater than Nebuchadnezzar or that God is wrong. That is not improper, but prophetically there will be a real literal day when all the world will bow the knee. Every throne, every prince, every captain of hosts to the king of kings. Don't miss the prophetical overture that is in this passage. Not just in a sense of, yes, God is stronger and more powerful and more sovereign. That indeed is the case. But in a real literal sense, there'll be a day where every knee shall bow. That day has not occurred yet. Sovereigns around the world make their decisions to and fro. I do not think that they consider the sovereign God of heaven. Not just in foreign nations, but I speak of our own. Do we really believe that the majority of political leaders today consider God's word when they make decisions? I do think that they consider polls, yes. But God's word, that's another thing. And historically, that would be the same way. Do you think the emperors of the Roman Empire considered God? Was God sovereign? Was God greater than them? Yes. But there'll come a day where all the kingdoms of this earth will go unto Jerusalem to bow. And they will bow the knee to the supreme God of heaven. And above all, they will worship him. That's millennial kingdom that we're referencing there. That is the matchless potentate that we serve, the great king. When you move to 48, every great king's got to have something else. He's got to have a great city. And that is the secondary theme of the 48th Psalm. Notice the first verse. It introduces really the primary theme and the secondary theme. Because really, the secondary theme is the city. A city is only as great as the king or master that can keep it. It would seem to me to be a little disingenuous in the text to speak exclusively about just how great the city was without with that mentioning the reasons for its greatness is because that is the seat of government of the great king to whom all the shields of all the world belong. Notice the first verse here. He says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in the mount of his majesty. And these opening verses, really about a half dozen, four or five times, I guess, he's going to make a reference to that city. You know, it's a marvelous thing to consider throughout the course of human history. There have been some great cities as man measures cities. Some were great because of the mighty wonders that therein do or did reside. I think of Cairo, 11 miles outside of Cairo, you'll come to the great pyramids of Giza, whose ancient were the ancient burial sites for the ancient Pharaoh, not Tuknakaman, he was the valley of the kings uh, up north from there. But to the ancient pharaohs, they were buried in those pyramids. Someone estimated the value of those pyramids or what they have at least found to be in excess of millions of dollars. That speaks of the great uh, power and might that formerly Cairo, as the seat of government of the uh, Egyptian empire, had. When you think of those, I can't help but think of ancient cities or cities of antiquity like Babylon and to consider the hanging gardens. Now listen, we spoke a moment ago about Nebuchadnezzar, the Sunday school hour. But I think he fell to a very common sin. He looked out that window and he beheld his city. And it had wonders and majesties and wealth and might that no other at that time had. And might in many ways surpass the greatness of a city which we contemporaries could know nothing out. I mean, we speak of cities today that have no walls. That was a phenomenon not really truly examined by any great city of antiquity. The walls would speak of the fortitude and the strength and the power and the wealth. Of Babylon's walls, 
they were thick enough at the top for which three chariots could ride abreast and race. As one, of, one rider would pen it, it was almost like the NASCAR circuit would happen on top of the walls, you know. And then they would tear down to a flare at the bottom and would be nigh unpregnable. No wonder remnant walls are still found millenniums later. I think of Constantinople, another great city of antiquity, with the Hagia Sophia, you know, that majestic building with the golden dome that sits in there that was at once a, uh, well, in one sense, a cathedral, and then it uh, transpired to a museum, and at different times by the Ottomans or by the Turks of today, it has been used as a, a mosque. The city walls of Constantinople, uh, they were so thick that they withheld over 300 different assaults before they fell to Mahmoud II in 1300s. You think of Constantinople, you think of her influence over the far regions of the Byzantium Empire. You think of other great cities, I think of Rome and her far-reaching power. I, I think of Alexandria or even Athens and the great influence that transpired. I think today of our cities, great cities, many of them, worldwide. I think of Tokyo, the most populous city on the planet. I think of the wealth that is embodied in New York City or of the history of London or the fanciful intrigue and longevity of Beijing. I think of the endurance of Jerusalem. These cities, to one extent or the other, have existed for great periods of times. Yet all of these cities have known besiegement and war. I have in my, in my study a picture of the Zion's Gate. It's part of the western gate that faces Jordan and the city of Jerusalem today. In fact, I just saw a documentary about this. It's about a two-minute article you can view on, online, you know. And when... You look at this, you'll notice that wall, that gate, and embedded upon that gate is whole. It looks like termites got hold of it. It's just riddled with holes. And here the interesting distinction that Jerusalem, the city of peace, you know, yet on the outskirts of that great city, all those holes are remnants and reminders of the great battles that have occurred even in this last century. They're bullet holes. And they surround and dot all along that, that western gate. Every one of these cities, if still in existence today, has known the ebb and flow of greatness. Yet the 48th Psalm speaks of a great city inhabited by a great king, and it speaks in great extent about this city because of the power of that great king. Notice some references made about this city. Notice, if you will, in verse number one, it references to the city of our God. And by this prepositional phrase, in the mountain of his holiness, it is established, this city, this great city, in the holiness of God. I don't know. I, you could talk about the holy city of the Vatican if you, you would want. You could reference that if you'd like. Uh, that is its nomenclature in one way. I do not know that you could say of any city that's holiness there. In fact, historically, cities, even mighty cities, have ultimately been the birthplace of the demise of the government empires which they represent. The fall of Rome started not in her rural townships. It started within her magnanimous walls of Rome. But here the city of God, this great king, it's seated in holiness. Another reference is made in verse number two of this city. It, it speaks of the joy of the whole earth is in Zion on both sides of the north, the city of the great king. And I would reference that once again. It's the seat of government to a great king. In verse number three, she's continued this city and this God that inhabits her, its palaces for a refuse. Now, I, I don't know what you consider when you think of palaces. Uh, I, I think sometimes of uh, the great palaces, perhaps, of England. And there's a number of them that dot. And I know them only from my experience of, of history or reading or, or watching them. And, and to me, their glamour and their glitz and their beauty and their wealth. But in their originality, they were not built for glitz and glamour. 
they were built as citadels. They were built as fortresses that overlook strategic areas to which a king and his lords could inhabit and secure and defend against any attacker. When you think about the palaces of God being a refuge, it is not singularly that they are just beautiful. They carry with it an aspect of being a citadel for safety, a place of abode, a place of reside in which one could come in and find safety from any pursuer that would aggressively set their face to their destruction. I think about the inhabitants of the city having a place, a refuge. Look down in verse number 8, another reference twice made in this verse. As we have heard, the psalmist says, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. I don't miss that for a moment. There's a Hebrew word that is used in the New Testament, in the book of James, actually. The Old Testament refers to as the Lord of hosts. The New Testament transcribes that Hebrew word into Greek and uses that transliteration Greek word. It is the word sabiath. The Lord Sabaoth, and that's what the word host means. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth. This is a beautiful picture here. It has the idea of the king in full battle regalia. It has the idea of being dressed for war, of having in his vesture all of those nations that he has conquered, of showcasing himself to be the king of kings and ready and yea, I might would add, able to defend all that have placed their trust in him. This great city is inhabited by the Lord of hosts, the Sabaoth, full battle of rape. Later in verse number 8, it speaks of the city of our God. God will establish it forever. Now, it's interesting that God would establish it forever. I can't think of a city that comes to mind that has forever been established. There are some that have changed hands and been around for hundreds of years. We mentioned Constantinople. That's probably a great example there. But to be established forever, this psalm in its whole is classified as a psalm of Zion and hence is seen as a psalm of thanksgiving. Likely it was used during their ritual walks as they would move around the city praising God and perhaps designated for festivities, not unlike the Feast of the Tabernacles. The ultimate text here is the Lord God is the subject of praise for his provision of this haven. No doubt one could consider the city of Jerusalem in this text, and no doubt it is in sense a part of the context, but it certainly has not been established forever. She experienced great deliveries. I know that I have referenced this one several times over the weeks, but Isaiah chapter 36 comes to my mind as one of the greatest deliverances that the nation of Israel, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and the city of Jerusalem would ever know. In the 36th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah moves from prophetical into historical, and there in the 36th chapter, he's going to speak about the invasion of the Syrians by Sennacherib. And that's the passages you find about the loudmouth prime minister, you know, Rabshakeh, who refused to speak in any other tone other than Hebrew. It was an embarrassment. And Hezekiah and the men of the city, having been besieged, praised, and God sent an angel at night. Do you remember this? So nearly 185,000 Assyrians died. And that awful night. History recalls. That Sennacherib and the remnants of his forces, 185,000 people, that's a lot of soldiers. That they would turn to Assyria. And his sons and descendants would kill him while he prayed to a pagan god. And Israel, and particularly Jerusalem, would be saved. I think about other times, I think about Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings chapter 22. All of those Edomites and Syrians rising up against him and he would go to battle and God would once again preserve and protect Jerusalem. Yet the singular fact is Jerusalem has not been a city that has been established in the true essence as a victorious city forever. She has on many occasions known grand defeat. Daniel would be remiss if we did not consider him. 
For it's during the times of Daniel that Babylon would invade and carry away in three separate captivity the host of the people that lived there. Nehemiah, 70 years later, hearing of the remnant of the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, would break down in great tears as he considered that there were no walls surrounding her. She was open for free pillage. There was no one to prevent the adversaries from coming in and taking what was not theirs and taking it to their place of abode. For even when Ezra returns, he goes from thence to build the temple of God. He takes with him all the provisions to build the temple. They're present and they're laid about a fence and politics and red tape get in the way. Yes, it's existed forever. But ultimately, there was the coldness of the heart of people, God's people. Their lack of desire to persevere under the most difficult of circumstances. And as a result, there's a 15-year hiatus from the time Ezra leaves to the time the temple is built. And during that time, by the time you get to Haggai, who eloquently describes this, all of the provision to build the temple had disappeared. There's no protection. It's a devastating time to live. A low ebb in its society. 70 AD might would come to mind as another time in which Titus and Vespasian ultimately brought about the utter and awful destruction of Jerusalem. And she would remain in ruins for the better part of a millennium. While the deliverances past of Jerusalem foreshadow a future deliverance, this is speaking about a time yet to come. A prophecy about her final preservation. Her deliverance perhaps from Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38. It lies yet ahead. A remnant as indicated in the scriptures in verses 4 and following. Where all the kings were assembled. Where they would all in unison pass by her together. Where they would see it and marvel. And yet there upon it God would send as it is in the seventh verse an east wind that would destroy the ships out of Tarshish. This is a habitation and an establishment of the city to which Abraham looked for. A city that had the truest of foundations, who found its source of power and establishment in the hand of a great king. This is no doubt, look if you will in Revelation chapter 21. Another city that was seen by John the Revelator in the final chapters of the final book of scriptures. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. I, John, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Yes, there are many cities that have existed, but this passage in the 48th Psalm speaks of something that is yet lies ahead. It is that time when Jerusalem becomes the city of peace in permanent existence. It is that time when wars have ceased. It is that time when a single great king reigns not, over a, not just over Jerusalem, but around all of humanity. It is that time when injustices are reconciled, when victories are complete. It is a new habitation and a new Jerusalem inhabited by the great king of the previous psalm. And note the preeminence here is the work of the great king, not the city of abode. Look, if you will, just a few thoughts here this morning on why God is to be praised. In the first few verses, we've alluded to this, but God is to be praised because of his dwelling place. He speaks in verse number one of the mountains of his holiness. I can't but in my mind go back to the 120th Psalm where he talks of, I will look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord that hath made heaven and earth. He later in that verse talks about, he shall not cause my feet to be moved. He shall establish my goings. You want to know a reason this morning to praise the great king? We praise him because of his majestic dwelling place. It's established not just in a singular mountains of, of, uh, of rest, but it's established in a place of true holiness. I would submit to you the thoughts of 
the beloved apostle as he's writing through inspiration to Timothy. He tells Timothy, and there's so many things that young Timothy could have pursued in life. But in that great epistle, Paul instructs him on this wise by the Holy Spirit. He says, seek godliness. Above all, pursue godliness, for it has the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Holiness today is often made something of a punchline and a joke, of a reference of being a iconoclastic, if you will, belonging to a former age. But my, when God establishes this great city which is to come, it will be the bedrock of its foundation, the constitution of its government, the codification of all of its laws will be directly uh, soaked and bathed in his holiness. There's nothing like it. Listen, friend, every civilization has unjust laws, but not this city. Every society has laws that are out of date, but not this city. Every society has laws that are not enforced, but not this city. Why? Because this majestic city is the capital It is the dwelling place of the great God and it is established and rooted and developed and grown out of his divine holiness. And that is what causes it to exist forever. It will be a blameless city. It will be a perfect city. All of the cities of the world will have a desire unto her. Because of such, when you come to verse number two, in speaking of his dwelling place, note this phrase, it'll be the joy of the whole earth. I know not a city today that the whole world joys at. There are regions of the world that joy at cities, but I cannot think of a singular city. History over. Look over the 6,000 years of recorded human history. You could be hard-pressed to find a city that the world over would joy at. I can tell you today that that is not Jerusalem. The world over does not rejoice in Jerusalem. I can tell you that's not Moscow. I can tell you that's not London. I can tell you it's not the cities of the United States or its capital of Washington, D.C. It's not Manila in the Philippines. It's not Tokyo in Japan. What city is there today that the whole world joys over? And I would take you back to the previous point. The one reason that the world has no joy in a single city is because no city is established in holiness. They seek their own. But the great king that's coming, that will establish that great city, it'll be a place of joy. And note what the scripture says, of the whole earth. There'll not be a single inhabitant in one of the far-reaching corners of the world that will not joy upon the sheer contemplation and meditation of the city of God. That's how I know, if I'm going to look literally, that the fulfillment of this lies yet ahead. For there will be a day in a city, the scripture mentions, of whence the whole world will joy about, that will be seated in perfection and true holiness. Notice a third reason to praise him as concerning his dwelling place. Look at verse 3. God is known in her places for a refuge. I rather like that. The entryway, I believe it's to the Hudson River, you know, you've got the Statue of Liberty. Send me all your beleaguered and poor and tyrus. My friend, I think of what the Lord told his disciples. Come to me, you that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This Jerusalem, preceding the establishment of this grand city in future prophecy, will be the resurrection of all of those dead martyrs of the tribulation, remember? Whose voice the revelation requires or or quotes are under the altar crying, How long, O Lord, how long? Sometimes our soul cries that. Being not separated from our body, but rather being in this world, we cry, how long will ungodliness continue? How long will wickedness pursue? How long will will, uh, unrighteousness be the keynote of our society? How long will sin go forward? But then there's that day 
when this city is established, the great king, the scripture says here of this dwelling place, it will be a refuge. There's a number of things for say. I, look up, if you will, at verse number two, thinking of the refuge. There's an interesting phrase here. He says, in speaking of the joy of the whole earth, and I, I move past this, but let me, let me just circle back to it a moment. He says, of this whole earth is a Mount Zion on the sides of the north. City of the King. And you know, you read that, the sides of the north, and you just go right by it. Here's an interesting thing. That's not there by accident. There's a topographical change that will occur to the land inhabiting the city of Jerusalem today. Topographical. There'll be a change that will occur. But that phrase, the sides of the north, if you were to go back and you look in Isaiah chapter 14, there's five I wills that Satan said. He said, I will ascend into the heavens. And he uses this phrase and he talks about the fact that Satan said that he would sit on the sides of the north of God's congregation. Isn't that amazing? And he will one day. Through his embodiment or possession of the son of perdition. Second Thessalonians says of him that he will come into the holy place of God, seated upon that place of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Later the scriptures records our eyes will be opened. Yes, this is a city that's going to know great warfare. But this is a city that will be delivered. Even on the sides of the north. That ought to be a token for us that there's no adversary that can conquer and defeat the sovereign plan of God. He is the great king, and he is to be praised in the city of his habitation, for it has been saved and preserved, and all those that run into it will be preserved evermore and will be saved and so done eternally. You know, for those that consider the ability to be able to lose one's salvation, I would submit to you that I cannot find anything that God does not complete. For he completed in six days the creation of all that is. He completed the promise that he made to Eve in the garden that he would send a redeemer. He's completed so many promises throughout scriptures. I like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6 that he will keep you unto that day. Amen. It's secure. Amen. God's city is never going to be uh, taken away. God's city will never be ruined. God's city, future tense, will be a continual place of habitation and refuge. Though it's demonic, though demonic power will besiege it and fight against it, he's ultimately to be praised for his dwelling place. Verses 4 through 7 give us a second thought about why to praise God greatly not only because of his dwelling place but i think secondly before is because of his defending power his defending power note if you will he speaks in verse number four about the king's assembling i'm always amazed i'm always amazed of the strange bedfellows that get together to war on against their cause there's so much truth in the enemy of my enemy is my friend the kings are assembled I think in the last days we speak of this battle of Armageddon. And biblically, it's between the Antichrist and the, against the kings of the east. But upon seeing that great God descending on a white horse, what will they do? They'll lay aside their petty grievances. And they'll coalesce around their common enemy, which is none other than our Savior. The kings have assembled. They've passed by together. He goes on to speak, not only is the enemy gathered and gathered in her great number, but the enemy is united. Their great common enemy is none other than God and his holiness. And then notice the following phrases that leap from the pages here in verse number 5, 6, and 7. It says they saw it. They saw his power. They saw his majesty. And they marveled. And they were troubled. What a polite way of putting this. What's the scripture say? They hasted away. You know what that means? Years ago, I had a friend of mine, and he went to uh, Guatemala as a missionary. And 
he just he had an ability. He was an older man. I, I guess now he's early 80s maybe. Uh, but he had retired earlier to go to the mission field. And uh, he just had a unique way of spinning a story. And he gave this illustration how when he felt the Lord impressing to quit his job and go to the mission field, he said, I, I ran. I ran from God. And he said, what I mean is I tucked my tail between my legs and lit off like a scalded dog. <laughs> what a great imagery there. Hasted away. Hasted away. They recognized the utter defeat that was sure to be placed upon them. They fled. He goes in verse 6, fear took hold upon them. Where was all that fear at in verse number 4 when they were gathered and assembled together? You know, this world really never can know boldness. Think of what the Proverbs relates to us. Talks about every man fleeing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Here the great kings. Full battle array. They've got their papers of allegiances and alliances. They've got their armies with them. They've got their best implements of war. And yet notice, upon seeing him, they fled away. Fear took hold upon them. And pain, what kind of pain? It was a crippling pain. As of a woman in travail. And the ultimate defeat that occurs in verse number 7, thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. These enemies have assembled from the four corners to plague and to destroy, yet God, as he buried Pharaoh in the deep, is committed to delivering his people. They came and faced him with their power, but met the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, and the Lord most high. The scripture in mentioning this in Ezekiel chapter 39 talks about the result of this great battle. The funeral procession will take seven months. He will devastate them. Hence why they hasted away. Why is God to be praised for his dwelling place? But he's equally to be praised for his defending power. None is able to defend like him. Notice the third thing quickly. The last few verses, you've got God is to be praised for his divine person. As if we needed yet a third reason. Equally, a third stanza should be necessary to acquaint our minds and heart so that our lips with great joy and gladness can pronounce praise upon his divine person. He says in verse 8, we have heard. So we have seen in the city of the Lord. I really think of this phrase. You know, it's one thing to hear of somebody's greatness. There's a lot of great things I've heard in life. I've heard about people's character. But nothing submits that as a truth, an indelible truth in my mind, as when I experience it by my own sight. I put that in the application of this passage. All those hosts that have gathered for a refuge in his palace, that have gathered there, and seen beyond its city walls the great host of kings from the four corners of the earth assemble themselves for war and flee away in destruction. All of them had heard of God's mighty ability. But now what have they done? They've witnessed it with their own ability. My friend, I'm getting ahead of myself to make just a tad bit of thought. But consider this. You'll never truly joy for the power of God until you have experienced it. In your own life. He continues. We've heard and seen God's power to establish. Notice if you will in verse number 9. Another praise about his divine person. He says. We have thought of thy loving kindness. Nehemiah I think speaks on this very kind. His, his loving kindness. His goodness is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He continues and he speaks of the attributes of his nature. He says in verse number 10, Thy name, O God, according to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. I think about Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. My friends, I spoke that his city was seated in holiness. 
And without holiness can no man see God. And David, or rather the Isaiah the prophet, said that all of our uh, works of righteousness are inferior to gain the righteousness necessary to please God. But the scripture says, He that knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jehovah Sidkenu. He is our righteousness. He speaks in verse number uh, 12 or 13, I guess, there. He speaks of his victories, his judgments. Verse 13, he says, mark the bulwarks, the entrenchments, you know. Mark them, consider those palaces. Well, there's a lot of bulwarks about that great city that we could consider. We could consider the bulwark of his kingly reign. I know that this is indirectly taken from scriptures, but I think about Handel's Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. And You ought to know one of the bulwarks, one of the entrenchments that buttresses the city and the establishment and the foundation of God's great city. It's the fact that he's always going to reign. There'll be no new administration. There'll be no Supreme Court's going to write him out of office. There'll be no other uh, elected official that rise up against him. He's going to be seated forever. And ten thousands generations to be born. And he'll still be king. And you know what the wonderful thing about it is? James said it this way. There's no variableness of change and shadow within him. He'll rule with the same vigor and sincerity and justice on day 10,000 that he did on day one. That is not human. We ebb and flow. We mature in life, you know. It's a bulwark. We consider the bulwark of his kingly reign. None compare for him. He's going to reign forever. We consider the bulwark of his promises. They're innumerable. Peter writes of them that they're exceeding great and precious. We consider the bulwark of his watchful providence. He beholdeth, the psalmist says, good and evil. He knoweth all things, and none shall escape him. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy said, I charge thee therefore by the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. But he says, I charge thee by the God that shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. That's his providence. He's beholding the good and the evil. He doesn't need a list of cabinet people to tell him what the latest polls are. He doesn't have to read through a list and laundry, laundry list of all the newspapers and behold all of the cable news that exist. He knoweth it firsthand. I've got to move on with my notes, but I think about the 139th Psalm. Wherewith shall I flee from his presence? He knoweth. The very word that is in my mouth. He knoweth my thoughts. Now some of our thoughts are afar off. We can't even get our thoughts out of our mouth sometimes. But no, he knows our thoughts long before we've had the ability to process them and verbalize them throughout our mouth. He knows them. That's the providence of him. I think about the bulwark of his presence. He dwells there. He dwells there. God is in that palace and I think by New Testament teaching we have his very person in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that resides in us I think of the bulwark of his covenant his pledges Hebrews chapter 12 in writing references this future uh, 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 Jerusalem as being a better city that's the theme of Hebrews better got a better offering a better savior a better priest we have a better covenant This new covenant of grace far outshines the Old Testament covenant. We have a promise of a kingdom which cannot be moved. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, our God is a consuming fire. You think about the foundations of a city, we think about the bulwarks that support this great city. Much more could be said. They are strong and faithful. Draw your attention it would seem, to the last verse. And as you glance over this, it seems something to take something of a sour turn on the top of it. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. That's interesting, isn't it? Why do we have to end there? 
The psalmist now is going back to not prophetical, to personal. See, in that future city, I ain't going to die. But right now isn't them. The Hebrew word's a fantastic word, muthladen. I'm sorry, muthleben. It ends with the B-E-N. And that's important because in Hebrew, that references son. It has the idea of a death of a son. I share this for you because the psalmist, through inspiration, is making this personal. Listen, what hope is it to me right now if all of this lies yet ahead? A great city and a great king that doesn't exist right now, but he does. And he will be my guide even unto death, even unto tribulation, even unto trial. All of this, a mighty enemy of death, of separation, of loss and hopelessness, your God, this great king who is seated in this great city, note this, is a personal God. He will be our God. The song, psalm rather, that is delivered to the sons of Korah as they sing, they've moved from not their God to our God. Right now, even unto death. I can't think of any greater difficulty a finality that man will experience on this side. Death is such a fantastically terrible sting. It has the air of permanency, of heartbreak. It seems our hope inadequate to express it. Yet God is our guide even unto death. He's a personal God. Even in the gloom of this life right now, God has promised to deliver. And thereby his children are not afraid to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. Now one of the psalmists could write, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. But right now, like Abraham of old, we desire a better country. That is an heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. John speaks of this and promising and contrasting of this city and world that we know now as compared to that one of future glory that he has promised to deliver Zion and so he will deliver us right now from even that greatest and last enemy that will beseech upon our soul. He will preserve our inheritance throughout eternity. Therefore, we should never cease in praising him for his greatness and his glory. Seems fitting that I should remind you of one of the last verses in Revelation, particularly the 22nd chapter and the 14th verse. The scripture records right at the conclusion of all of it, you know. Almost in singularity with the 48th Psalm. A move, a move from what will be to what is. All of Revelations is what will be. You come to the 22nd chapter, 21st chapter, he's talked about New Jerusalem, and he's detailed that city four square. It's river. It's tree that gives fruit. It's meteorological influence. There's no need of sun. For his glory shall illuminate that city. Every tear be wiped from the eyes. But that's all future. What about the right here and now? And seemingly, the Holy Spirit moved John, the 22nd chapter, and so he moves here, the psalmist in this 14th verse, to consider that God's a personal God right now. And that 14th verse of Revelation 22, he said, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to see the tree of life. And may enter through the gates into that city. You see, this thing comes full circle. If you want the refuge of that great king in his great city. If you want to be part of that great city which shall be established forever and be a joy unto the whole world. If you want to experience firsthand the deliverance of God from all of the difficulties that pester and plague the life of humanity. If you want deliverance from a life 
of doom. If you want deliverance from the wrath of God and that subsequent condemnation that will be passed upon all, you have a personal responsibility. You're going to have to see. You're going to have to obey. You're going to have to by faith receive him. Therefore then he will guide you even unto your death. David had so much to say about this in the 40th Psalm. I believe it's the 37th Psalm where he said, I am old and I have been young. But I have never seen the righteous forsaken. Note his word. He didn't say, I have never heard of the righteous forsaken. For he himself had experienced need in life. He himself had experienced trials in life. It was he that was pursued all manner of the wickedness, or all manner of the wilderness, rather, by his father-in-law. It is he that in old age would be nearly killed by his own son. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen it. My personal experience is equal to my personal hearing that God is a refuge. And that experience and that understanding gives me hope that he has the power and ability to guide me all the days of my life, even unto death. Great is the Lord. Great Let's stand right Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.